Howdy. Welcome to 127 on the Mic. This sermon was recorded by our college pastor, John Davison, as we walk through the book of Daniel on Sunday nights here at 127. We believe that God has something unique to teach us and how the book of Daniel points us to how Jesus is the greater Daniel. If you have any questions, feel free to check out our website, which is fbcbryan.org slash college. Thank you. Amen. Thanks, guys. Grab your Bible. Daniel chapter 11. One, you're like, hey, I thought we did this already. We're halfway. So um, one quick reminder as the lights are coming on in the back of, that was the opposite of what we wanted. Uh, In the back of the room, there will be some of our leaders afterwards. And uh, we have the December Proclamation Coalition bracelets back there. And so, again, if you don't know what this is, it's, it's the easiest tool that we've found so far to help you memorize Scripture. And so go back there and grab them. They're on sale for $5. Zach's holding up the box right now. Uh, I th- these, these are wrapped up in like some Christmas verses. The colors are really cool. You're going to want the sticker. And so just get back there uh, and get that. Again, $5. If you, if, you can't, if you can't pay for it, then just go back there and be like, hey, I don't have $5, but I want to hide God's word in my heart. And they're going to give it to you, okay? Uh, but don't lie because that's a terrible way to start like your scripture memorization journey. And so, but let them know that. Okay, Daniel chapter 11. In... Uh, a Lifeway article titled, Pastors, the End of the World is Complicated. We read this. Most Protestant pastors believe Jesus will return in the future, but few agree about the details of the apocalypse. A third of America's Protestant pastors expect Christians to be raptured or taken up to the sky to meet Jesus as the times begin. About half think a false Messiah known as the Antichrist will appear sometime in the future, A surprising number think that the Antichrist has already been here or isn't on his way at all. About half, 49%, say the Antichrist is a figure who will arise in the future. Others say there is no individual Antichrist, 12%, that he is a personification of evil, 14%, or an institution, 7%. 6% say the Antichrist has already been here. Baptists, 75%. And Pentecostals, 83%, are most likely to see a future Antichrist. It's a weird way to say that. Lutherans, 29%. Methodists, 28%. Presbyterian Reformed pastors, 31%, are more likely to see the Antichrist as a personification of evil. Education also played a role into how pastors see the Antichrist. Two-thirds of those with no college degree or a bachelor's degree believe in a future Antichrist figure. Fewer than half of those with a master's degree, 39%, or a doctorate, 49% hold that view. And so, so we look at these numbers and you go, hmm, why is this so confusing? And the answer uh, is because God intended for it to be that way, I guess. Um, when we look at these things and you see how they play out and then you think about educated versus non-educated versus different denominations versus different people and all of this, the views and the ideas about the end times and the Antichrist are all over the place. And so that should drive or help us understand maybe the difficulty that's found in Daniel chapter 11, because we only got through the first 20 verses. And some of you, I was, I got off of the stage last week and in the guy's group chat, somebody was like, I'm lost. And I was like, I was lost a long time ago. And then then someone tried to explain it using big words. And That was just where we're at. And I get that. And it's that way with a purpose. Today, it takes a little bit more of maybe an easy term because it talks about one person 
And then it talks about the Antichrist, and it helps us maybe see what is to come um, that Jesus is just really brings to us. And so when we think about Christmas, we think about all of that, this, this should just stir your, your thoughts and your affections for uh, the redemption that is to come one day in the second coming, but what Jesus started in the first coming, all of that. And so what we have here, we're going to start in verse 21, and then there's going to be a break after 35, and it's going to turn really quick. It's going to talk about one person from 21 to 35, and then 36 to the end of the chapter is all about the Antichrist. And most evangelicals would, would say and loudly declare that this is actually what takes place. It's what's called prophetic foreshadowing, which means that there's a, a time gap in between something, but the prophet is looking at it, and it's, it's kind of two mountain ranges in the picture, but he doesn't tell us about the valley. He just looks at it and goes, that mountain, that mountain. I need to tell you all about those mountains, but there's this gap in the middle that is an unknown amount of time, and for this, it's a long time because we know who one of these people is. We don't know who the other one is, but we just need to explore it. So it's, again, it's divided into those two sections. So starting in Daniel chapter, 20, or Daniel chapter 11, verse 21, here's the idea. If God is sovereign, then he is raising up, or he has raised up in this example, an evil ruler who is going to refine, who's going to purify, and who's going to help sanctify God's people. He's going to use an evil ruler to bring about these things. Because like an anti-Semitic idea, an opposition to Israel, echoes really loudly through the Old Testament. It's not something that you really get away from. People are just always after them. You read this story and you go, there is no one more evil than who this guy is. And let me show you just with a slide to maybe help us understand what's happening, who this is. Antiochus III, this is verse 19 if you're reading through this. He will turn his attention back to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and be no more. He has two boys, Seleucius over here on, on the left, Antiochus IV there on our right. The next ruler is his first son in verse 20. In his place, one will arise who will send out a tax collector for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he will be broken, though not in anger or in battle. Solosius sends out a tax collector to make a deal with some people. That guy comes back and poisons him and kills him. That's what happens. In the line, then Seleucius' son, Demetrius, should be the next ruler. When he dies, Demetrius is in Rome, and he's hanging out. And so the other brother, Antiochus IV, who's kind of uh, cunning, a little bit arrogant, um, decides that he can weasel his way into becoming the ruler, and he succeeds while his brother is gone. And then we see this 21 through 35 about him. 36 starts the story of the Antichrist. All of this helps us more clearly see Jesus and his character. So this is where we're at. So starting in verse 21, we'll read a couple verses. In his place, a despised person will arise. Royal honors will not be given to him. He was not the one that should have been the next king. But he will come during a time of peace and seize the kingdom by intrigue. A flood of forces will be swept away before him. They will be broken as well as the covenant prince. After an alliance is made with him, he will act deceitfully. He will rise to power with a small nation during a time of peace, he will come into the richest parts of the province and do what his fathers and his predecessors never did. He will lavish, plunder, loot. He will lavish, plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers 
and he will make plans against fortified cities, but only for a time. And so this despised person, the ESV calls him a contemptible person, um, is Antiochus IV. And he gets into power, weaseling his way in. And then in verse 22, the Egyptians attack him with a flood of forces. It's a large army, but they are soundly defeated. They are broken and they are taken captive. Also during this time, uh, Antiochus disposed of uh, Onias, which was the high priest of Jerusalem at the time. You, can, you read that there towards the end, this covenant prince is also gotten rid of. And, and then when you continue to read through verses 23 and 24, you hear his deceitful, um, he, he was full of flattery in himself, and this is how he rises to power. And in that, that last verse of 24, halfway through it, he will lavish plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers. If you go and read about him in history, he used to go into like the common bathhouses, which means like the sort of the poor people bathhouses, and he would just go in there, and to make him more popular, he would just throw money at them. Here, have some of this. He would just go to people like that. He would, he would invade weaker countries. He would overtake. He would steal, and then he would go back and just give it away. And some of you are like, sounds like a pretty good ruler. Uh, except he was using it to just gain the, the trust, boost his popularity of his people with an evil practice. And, and you look at that, and you go, flattery and deceit, which is kind of what he was known for, only gets you so far because they are sinful characteristics in the eyes of God, and he does not bless those things. But this is how this guy was functioning. And in that, they really are no match for God's sovereign plan, no matter how powerful he thinks he was going to be. Um, these wicked devices that he were, was using is something that we should avoid because it's something that God is not honored by, and he's not going to stand in that. And then verse 25, with a large army, he will stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. It's Egypt. The king of the south will prepare for battle with an extremely large and powerful army, but he will not succeed because plots will be made against him. Those who eat his provisions will destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall slain. The two kings whose hearts are bent on evil will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For still the end will come at the appointed time. Now, now this is important, especially when you try to, try to connect what's happening in these first couple verses all the way through verse 35 to the change that happens in verse 36 because we keep hearing this, this little phrase, at the appointed time, which basically gives you the underlying idea that God is in control of all of this. This happens when God wants it to happen. It's just the appointed time. Verse 28, the king of the north will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action, then return to his own land. So it's speaking back to his first campaign against Egypt. He defeats that king of the south because there were plots that were made against that king, which means that he had evil men that did evil deeds. Uh, Egypt had some people that weren't loyal. He had disloyal subjects in Egypt, and they kind of turned on the Egyptian king. It leads to their downfall. And then we have Egypt and Syria. They sit down at the negotiating table to try to go against them. The two kings whose hearts are bent on evil will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. And so these guys have a deceitful tongue. They have a deceitful heart. They're speaking lies to one another. Evil hearts speak 
evil words. That's James 3. You can dive into that. Their talks fail. It comes to no avail. Why? Because God has appointed the time. Things will move forward on God's timetable, not on Egypt or Syria's timetable, not on a human timetable, not on this evil ruler's timetable. But he returns home with great wealth after plundering Egypt. This is 169 BC. You just go and read about the history of this. When he comes home, there is a Jewish uh, insurrection, a revolt that's happening there. And his heart at this point then was set against the Holy Covenant. You just read that in verse 28. And Stephen Miller in his book on Daniel says this, he returns home and he puts down the rebellion. He massacred 80,000 men, women, and children. This is 2 Maccabees 5, 12. You can read all of this Jewish history in the book of Maccabees. It's kind of a cool read if you want to get in there. And then he looted the temple with the help of an evil high priest The persecution of the Jews by this evil tyrant had now escalated to unheard of proportions. He's going against the Jewish people now after overthrowing Egypt in the way they did or defeating Egypt, and now he gets here. And so humans out of a wicked heart are going to lie. They're going to intimidate. They're going to negotiate in evil ways. They're going to plot, rebel. They're going to murder, they're going to pillage. They're going to do all of those things. But the final outcome and result is still it's still in God's hands. And here's just a simple truth. If you, want to, if you want to write some notes here on the side of my Bible, let's just move this out of the way. It says, God controls history. And, and you can just kind of sit in that, that, that God controls history. We can, we can watch after our hearts. We can guard our tongues. We can do all of these things, which this evil king is not good at. We can do all of these things while still trusting that God is at work, even in the midst of an evil and an out-of-control world. He's, he's still at work. I would hate for you to get to this point one day where you look around and you go, God doesn't have this anymore. And you look around and go, God's not in control anymore. We have to just rest in the promise that God is in control of this. And then this pushes us into verse 29, like the understanding that that this guy has an evil, an evil tongue, an evil heart. He's full of flattery. He's full of deceit. We can avoid those things. But then in verse 29, we just need to be reminded that we can embrace God's work even in difficulty. We can embrace God's work even in suffering. It says this, at, at the appointed time, it's there again, he will come again to the south. But this time will not be like the first. Ships of Katim will come against him. And being intimidated, he will withdraw. And, and I love like what, what happens here. Uh, Antiochus encountered this opposition. Uh, the ships of Katim, which is really Cyprus, is a Roman feat, uh, a Roman fleet, Roman feet, that would be cool. Um, Roman fleet that had come to Alexandria at the request of the Egyptian king. And they come to him. The Roman commander, Gaius, goes before him. You can read about this. Hands Antiochus a letter from the Senate. And it says, you either leave Egypt or you deal with us. And then he grabbed his sword and he drew a circle around him in the sand. And he said, when you step out of the circle, your decision's made. And so he left him in his little circle in the sand to think. He stepped out of the circle and went home. Just left Egypt. It's like, I'm, I'm not going to deal with you. And, and know that like, this is future speaking here, this prophecy. So, so they come against him, and being intimidated, I would think so, some general drew a circle around you in the sand and told you you can't play anymore. 
he will withdraw. Then he will rage against the holy covenant and take action. And so Roman kicks him, the, the Roman government, the Romans kick him out of Egypt. He goes home, and who does he pour out his wrath on? Israel. He rages war against the holy covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the holy covenant, which means that, that the Israelites, the Jewish people who forsake their faith and follow him, he shows favor to them. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will fall by the sword and flame and be captured and plundered for a time. When they fall, they will be helped by some, but many others will join them in secretly, insincerely, that's that word. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. His embarrassment in Egypt turns to anger and he directs that to the Jewish people. He sends one of his rulers ahead. This is 2 Maccabees. If you want to read it, just go download it. 2 Maccabees 5. He sends one of his rulers ahead, which is the head of all of his mercenaries. He's the, the chief collector of the tribute is what they call him. Sends him to Jerusalem. This guy pretends to come in peace to the Jewish people, but then on the Sabbath day, he attacks the Jews, massacring many of them, plundering the city, and then he rewards those that denounce their faith, who abandon the Holy Covenant and support their policies. In 187 BC, a couple years later, the persecution of the Jewish religion reaches its climax. All the Jewish religious practices, we just read about this, such as uh, circumcision, possessing the scriptures, offering sacrifices, observing feast days, all of them are forbidden And if they catch you practicing them, you are put to death. The imperial cult is introduced. The desecration of the Jewish religion at this point has reached such a a high point. Uh, This is December 15th, 167 BC, that an altar to Zeus is is resurrected in the temple in Jerusalem. This is how far gone it is. On December 25th, sacrifices which were mainly pig sacrifices, were then offered on the altar. And one of the ways that they knew that you would abandon your faith is if they offered it to you and you ate it. And this, if you know anything about Jewish culture, is, is pretty offensive. The temple's desecrated. The abomination of desolation is now a historical reality for them. And so he uses flattery to gain the hearts of his people, a deceitful tongue. He He lies, but he gets people to support his policies. This continues to corrupt the Jews that have abandoned their faith. They begin to act wickedly, verse 32. But even in this dark period, there's still faithful Jews that are rising up that still get to lead other people. Many of these people stand firm in their faith. They're resolved in their hearts not to eat this unclean food that's been sacrificed. They would choose rather to die than to do this, and many of them do. And in the same book, Stephen Miller says this, Foremost among those who resisted the oppressive measures of Antiochus were the Maccabees. A certain priest named uh, Mathathias refused to forsake his God. He had five sons, three of whom, Judas, Jonathan, and Simon, became known as the Maccabees. Although the term Maccabeus, which means hammer, 
was originally given only to Judas. Apparently this dude was, was wild. The Maccabees successfully overthrew the Syrian yoke through a series of brilliant military victories, which uh, Zechariah 9, 13 through 17 predict that this was going to happen. They overthrow or they, they succeed against uh, Antiochus' military commanders, um, one after the other. And then as a result, the temple was rededicated um, a year later on December 14th. And so this is, this is the battle that they're going through. Verse 33, those who have insight among the people will give understanding to many, yet many will fall by the sword and the flame, be captured and plundered for a time. When they fall, they'll be helped by some, but many others will join them insincerely. Some of those who have insight will fall so that they may be refined, purified, cleansed until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. This is, this is the promise of God. This is a period of oppression when they feel defeated. But if they remain faithful to Yahweh, as we see here, and it says, will be helped by some, that's just a small number of forces who fight against this guy. And eventually we see the overthrow of this evil king. Antiochus IV died in 163 BC during an expedition in Persia, bringing a conclusion both to his his wicked life, and his atrocities against God's people. He died a horrible death. He relates, the, there's a, a historian, uh, Polybius, he relates that according to some that the king died because he went crazy. Um, we don't know the full story of this, but, but this is a guy who rises to power relatively quickly, goes against the Jewish people, and then on just a normal, everyday kind of journey, he loses his mind and loses his life. And we look at this and we go, this despised king was no more right then. And so we have to learn from faithful people here. I don't know if we're ever going to walk through anything like this, but we embrace God's work in spite of difficulty. We embrace God's work, work in spite of suffering, no matter what that looks like. I can't imagine having a guy come back and seeing your family murdered or abandoning their faith in front of you and still being faithful to follow after God, sitting in these promises that you've heard the prophet Zechariah talk about, that you maybe, like, I mean, Daniel's seeing this. He's speaking this. They're reading this. Okay, this is future. So they already have this prophecy to them. And, and how they function in this, I don't know. But they do. And then this is the end. And so God is using an evil tyrant little ruler to refine his people, to sift through his people, to bring the faithful to the top, and then it takes a turn. And, and if the same, the same God brings about this type of ruler, then we have to say, and this may be difficult for you, that the same God will rise up an antichrist who will exalt and magnify himself as God that eventually leads to God getting glory in that. And so this is the turn that it takes in verse 36. Then the king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God. He will say outrageous things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed because what has been decreed will be accomplished. And, and I love that that's the next kind of connective thought there because 
Daniel looks at this and he begins to highlight two things that we need to look at or carefully consider for our lives that are coming from the Antichrist and the arch enemy of God. Because when you read this, you begin to go, hey, is this just talking about the same king? I don't really see a good transition there. Remember, he's looking at two mountains. He didn't really have to connect the two. But the language begins to shift because in verse 40, talking about the same king, at the time of the end. And so we have to know that he's, he's not talking about this. He's talking about the end times. He begins to talk about things that haven't happened yet. And, and a lot of liberal scholars will look at this like they did at the beginning of Daniel 11, and they'll go, hey, this came from somebody that was like second century that saw all of history play out, and then they wrote with real like precise measure the, the, the uh, prophecy in Daniel chapter 11. And so we can look at that and go, oh, somebody else had to speak into that. That's just way too on spot for that to just be random prophet. But then when we get here, the liberal scholars will go, yeah, uh, 36 and on, they, they, missed, they missed all that. N- none of this has happened yet. Those, that prophet that was in the second century, he, he got blurry at that point, and he just couldn't figure this out because the transition is so weird here. But this is what we're seeing here is God is raising up a new king, an antichrist, who's going to exalt and magnify himself, verse 36. Then the king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed because what has been decreed will be accomplished. Verse 37, he will not show regard for the gods of his fathers, the god desired by women, or for any other god because he will magnify himself above all. This antichrist basically makes a deity of himself. He deifies himself before the people. Now he's a self-willed man. He does whatever he wants. He's an egomaniac. He exalts and magnifies himself above every other God. He sees himself as divine. He says outrageous things against the God of gods. He's a blasphemer, but he's successful all the way up until the time of wrath, which literally is God's judgment poured out. The ESV says God has accomplished these things in him. We, we see him really kind of just as a menace. He's an anti-God menace all throughout this whole chunk of scripture. He shows no regard for the God of his fathers, a God desired, the God desired by women, which is a weird statement, or any other God. And so when I read that, I go, well, the first one's pretty clear. The first phrase is easy to understand. The Antichrist has no respect for like religious heritage. That makes sense. But what is the God desired by women? What does that mean? The ESV, if you're looking at it, it, it translates the one beloved by women. And, and I read this, the king will not favor normal marital relations, nor any God, because he will make himself greater than all. His arrogance renders him incapable of the loving devotion that is required by both marriage and true piety. He personally is not married and does not rightly honor the one true God as a king. He imposes this disdain for marriage that is this dishonorable view of God he forces that upon his subjects. And so it says he's anti-religion, he's anti-marriage. This is what he is setting up, verse 38. Instead, he will honor a God of fortress, a God his fathers did not know with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. Basically, he honors a God of war. He gets his, his power and his wealth and his significance from war. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. And then verse 40, at the time of the end, 
The king of the south will engage him in battle, but the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. He will invade countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, that's Israel, and many will fall, but these will escape from his power, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of the Ammonites. He will extend his power against the countries, and not even the land of Egypt will escape. He will get control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the riches of Egypt. Uh, the Libyans, the Cushites will also be in submission, but reports from the east and the north will terrify him, and he will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. He will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, but he will meet his end with no one to help him. What is described here it really is the language and the perspective of Daniel's day. It's the final struggle and the battle at the end time, and I think one battle could be in view here, but most likely this, it's a final campaign that's being described. It's multiple battles. It's giving us this precise detail on uh, the vision's final goal, the character of the Antichrist and those like him who are going to rule in the world for a season. They're gonna, um, but we see kind of the world fading here. And so I wanna, I wanna summarize these verses really, really quickly. Uh, verse 40. At the end of the age, the Antichrist, now identified as the king of the north, will be attacked by the king of the south. But the Antichrist wins a resounding victory in verse 40. This will allow him to advance into other countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will invade Israel in verse 41. Many will die, but some of the surrounding nations there are going to be spared. Uh, verse 42 and 43, the Antichrist will extend his power against the other countries and be on the verge of complete and overwhelming victory. Uh, Revelation 13 connects to this and informs us that he will rule the world for a short time. Verse 44, he will become terrified as he receives reports from the east and the north. And then uh, he will again pursue his enemies with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy them. And, and I love, this connects to Revelation chapter 9. I'm just going to flip back there and read a couple verses. If you want to follow me, it's the last book uh, in the Bible. You can get there pretty quick. Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. From the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. You're going to read this and be like, I'm going to have a lot of questions after this. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red, high synth blue, sulfur yellow. The heads on the horses were like the heads of lions. And from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. You got a lion-headed, fire-breathing horse? It's on. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, fire, smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. You think that the Antichrist hears about this and goes, eh, no big deal. Uh, hey, whatever your name is, I don't want to give him a name so I'll probably offend somebody or somebody's relative in here. Um, we got word that there's 200 million mounted cavalry coming on horses with lion heads and snake tails. And they, they're breathing. And as they breathe on people, they die. 
They're, they're annihilated at this point. You, you read this and you're going, okay, I, I, I want to pursue my enemies with a great fury and, and completely destroy them. And this is what we get. 1612 says this, the sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And so this is, this is more speaking to the, the, like, I think I'm safe. I think that I've built this little thing. I, I have a river that they got across. And then all of a sudden it's dried up and we're vulnerable at this point. This is why he is on guard here as we're looking through those verses. And then we go back to this. And so if you're connecting Revelation really kind of loosely and quickly, I know, but go back and read it more. It'll be fun. Reports from the east and the north terrify him. Yes. And he'll go out with a great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. And then he, he sets up his camp between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, but he will meet his end with no one to help him. He sets up his camp in Israel and he meets his end. The Antichrist is going to meet these attacking forces basically in Palestine, so modern day. He, he makes his headquarters there between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. The seas denote the two body of water there um, on either side of Israel. That's the Mediterranean Sea on the west, the Dead Sea on the east. The holy mountain is Mount Zion. It's where he's camping. It's where the temple stood, rendering the mountain beautiful and holy because of the temple. The Antichrist is going to use the Jerusalem temple for his headquarters. This is Second uh, Thessalonians 2.4 that talks about that. And though the brunt of the battle is going to take place elsewhere, Daniel here is reporting that the final war is going to be fought in Israel, and it's a fact that is set forth all throughout Scripture. That's uh, Ezekiel 39, that's Joel 3, that's Zechariah 12. Um, a lot of the minor prophets you're reading are going to see that, Zechariah 14. The book of Revelation indicates more specifically where this is at. This is the battle of Armageddon, uh, Megiddo is what you'd call it. And so finally, the career of the most evil man in history is terminated. It comes to an end. Earlier in the book of Daniel, it's revealed that he's this little horn. I love this idea. And he's going to finally be judged when the Lord comes back to set up his kingdom. That's Daniel chapter 7. And Paul calls him a man of lawlessness. He says this man of lawlessness will be destroyed by the splendor of Christ's coming. It's a great verse to memorize, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And John teaches that the, the beast will be captured and he's thrown into the lake of fire at Christ's return, Revelation 19.20. This chapter closes with this pronouncement that there will be no escape. There will be no help from any source. The Antichrist, when the judgment of God falls upon him and his evil empire, he is done. He will meet his end with no one to help him. This puny, I think we call him that, human thing meets the king of kings meets the lord of lords and it's no contest he ravages the earth and then when god decides at the time of the end just the right time it's over and and so we look at this and we go okay I think Jesus is pretty clearly seen in this text because of the contrast between not only the evil ruler Antiochus and the Antichrist. We see his goodness in opposition to their evilness. We see his light in opposition to their darkness. And it's really on full display. And so, so I just want you to see these. Maybe take a picture of these. This is, this is what we get through all of that scripture. 
They were despised in verse 20. They're deceitful in verse 23. They hate the holy covenant. That's God's people in verse 28. They desecrate the temple in 31. Versus God, he is desired. He is truthful. Because Jesus, he loves God, loves God's holy covenant. He cleanses the temple. These evil men abolished all of the sacrifices. Jesus became the sacrifice. These men persecute and murder God's people. Jesus comes to refine, pursue, I want to put that in there, and purify God's people. They were willful, doing what they wanted. Jesus was submissive, not my cup. He says, take it from me, but your will, not my will, be done. They want to exalt themselves. In verse 36, Jesus humbles himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. They want to magnify themselves as God. In verse 36, Jesus incarnated himself as God. They blaspheme God pretty clearly. Jesus glorifies God. They worship the God of war. Verse 38, Jesus is the God of peace. These men, their kingdom come to a pretty abrupt end. Jesus' kingdom endures forever. And this is what this points to. Like, it's, it's difficult, sure. But this is our right response. And I can read this one more time, and then we're going we're gonna to respond in worship. So that's your cue band if you want to, uh, if you want to come up here. Because here's the end. Even when people don't understand it, even when theologians and denominations and seminaries and degrees, they just don't agree on what the end's gonna look like, this is what we get. This man ransacks the earth, basically. But reports from the east and the north terrify him. He's in control. What is he gonna be terrified of? Well, we see what he's terrified of in Revelation. And he will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. He fails at this. He sets up his camp near the beautiful holy mountain, mocking God, and there he meets his end with no one to help him. And it's in God's kindness that he reveals this to his chosen people to let them see what the end is going to look like. And, and even when you read this and you go, John, I, I don't even know where to start, bro. Like, I... What in the world? Why? Why is God revealing this to us in this way? One, because I think it was in his kindness to show his chosen people what they were going to walk through all the way up until verse 35. And that, that, remember, we reminded you of this. This is kind of that gap of, of silence that we see after the book of Malachi and some of the things that happened. It's kind of spread all throughout that season. And so, so when they were like, all is lost, God has revealed that all is not lost. And they got to battle through that and remain faithful, many of them, all the way until the point when Jesus showed up and, and brought that redemption for them. Now think of, the, think of the release that they had. Their entire identity was wrapped up in obeying the law. And then Jesus comes in and doesn't get rid of it, but satisfies it for them. They're no longer under a covenant of works. They get to move into a covenant of grace and it shifts all of that for them. Like what a release that was. But then he gives us the, the latter part of Daniel chapter 11 and I look at that and I look at you and I go, God, like what, how do we even close this? But then, but then I take a step back and I go, if God hadn't intervened in my life and hadn't revealed himself in unbelievably beautiful ways to me, then my story, which if we're ranking stories, it's pretty bad. Some of you have worse. 
my story would have been so totally different. And so for those of you in the room today who are walking through like really, really blessed times or really, really difficult times, I I want you to see, even when you don't fully understand it, I, I want you to see that God controls the end of it. And the end is pretty radical. Okay, you wanna be on the team of the lion-headed horses with snake tails breathing on people and they're all dying. And you're like, that's violent. You're right. And it's allowed to be because God is serious about his glory. He's serious about sin and he's serious about judgment. And we see all of that. And left unchecked, all of us become Antiochus. All of us can probably fit into a lot of these descriptors of the Antichrist. Like we can't, outside of God rescuing us from that. And when, when, you, when you understand that, even if you don't fully understand that, but you understand God controls the end. He's sovereign over the nations. He sets up and he tears down kings for his glory. He is controlling all of this. And so our small little things that we walk in, that, that we have such a giant fear over, your God is in control of those. And even if it doesn't play out the way that you want it to, It's playing out the way that he wants it to for his glory, and you can rest in it. That should be our response. And so tonight, as you're you're walking in that and you're wrestling with that, I I, I just, I don't wanna skip past just the, you know, the wrap up of Daniel. We have one more kind of quick run through chapter 12 next week, saying goodbye to you for Christmas. I just don't wanna miss like the opportunity for you to hear that story and maybe for the first time go, wow, I need Jesus, or wow, I need to run back to Jesus. And so our response is is getting pretty normal in this room. Um, The entire room becomes an altar for you. And there'll be people, leaders, and and people on our prayer team and stuff that'll be back in the back. And if you just see somebody standing back there, uh, sort of of worshiping, sort of looking around, uh, they just, they wanna pray with you and encourage you in that decision. And so if the Lord is stirring you in any way tonight, maybe to ask him uh, to be Lord of your life for the first time, or just to run back to him as a faithful reminder that he controls everything, then run to them and be like, hey, could you, could you pray with me? Could you encourage me? Could you help me in this? And that's what they're there for. Let me pray for you. And then we'll respond with a couple songs um, and then get out of here so you can start studying for this next couple of weeks. All right, let's pray. God, thank you uh, for your goodness. Thank you for uh, a story that, that, man, we could not write. And half the time, a story we don't understand. And we thank you that you control all of it. We thank you that you're a God who has gone before. You're a God that sees everything. You're a God that's outside of our timeline and you're controlling things in a way that we'll never fully understand. Uh, but in that, you're a God who's faithful. You're a God that we can trust. You're a God who wrote the story that's going to bring you the most glory and we just get to be a part of it. And so would we run to that tonight? God, would you give us a, a, an understanding by your spirit? Would you give us a new trust? I'm in that and we just lean into you, knowing that that you're the opposite of all of those things. When we we compare and contrast those two things together, we thank you that you are that faithful king. We thank you that you didn't come to be served, but to serve. We thank you for what you accomplished, most importantly on the cross, and the fact that we have access to the Father now. And and these end time things that we don't fully understand um, aren't really actually that important because we get to worship the God who controls all of it anyway. And so may we trust you more and more in that as we respond uh, and worship tonight. God, have your way by your spirit in Jesus' name.